Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Arthur Snell. It used to be said that the sun never sets on the British Empire. Its territories were so vast that it was always daytime somewhere in a British colony. For anyone living in Britain in 2020, that sometimes feels true, although in a different way. Although it's now more than 50 years since most colonies achieved their independence from Britain, we still seem to be obsessed with the empire. Just look at the utterly dispiriting row over whether people might sing the words to rule Britannia at the last night of the proms, or the fact that in 2012, which isn't that long ago, the government decided to reintroduce something called the British Empire Medal, as if that would be a meaningful way of recognising somebody's achievements. So why is this? Why are we living in the shadows of empire? To help us understand this, I'm delighted to have Dr. Samir Puri here with us today. Samir is the author of The Great Imperial Hangover, How Empires Have Shaped the World, which was published by Atlantic Books in July this year. And it was featured in the FT's Year Ahead in Books and has been very well reviewed. Prior to writing the book, Samir worked in the Foreign Office for a number of years. He worked in counterterrorism and was also on the ground in Ukraine, just as Russia's little green men were seizing Crimea. So he's had a fascinating personal career. Perhaps more pertinently in relation to the book, Samir was born in East London and his family heritage stretches back across the former British Empire to East Africa and India. So Samir, welcome to The Bunker. Arthur, thank you for having me on. Delighted to be here. Well, Samir, it's great to have you. And, And I thought it might be good uh, to start actually with you just telling us a little bit about yourself. As I mentioned in the introduction, your own sort of family heritage is relevant to this story. Perhaps you could say a little bit more about that. Yeah, uh, it's a really uh, personal book in some respects, although I've made sure my author's voice is not too prominent. It's not a biography, clearly. But I really, really am conscious of the fact that my existence and my my life in the UK really is owed to the British Empire, the way it came about and the way it eventually collapsed. And all of this is unbeknown to me because I was born, as you mentioned, in London in the 80s. But my my family had been through two continental migrations in the space of two different generations, starting in Punjab in India, and then in the 1930s, at the behest of the British Empire, ending up in East Africa, and then from East Africa at the end of empire in London, in the former imperial metropolis. And what really struck me is that, you know, I wasn't really born with the notion, well, you're from the British Empire. But I also noticed that all of my my British school friends, my British university friends uh, and colleagues who are a similar generation to me, born after the end of empire, had never really been asked to confront the implications of what it means to be currently living in uh, what was, as you said in your introduction, uh, the largest empire that the world had ever seen upon which the sun had never set. There's all sorts of legacies embedded deeply in the British psyche 
across all swathes of society, whether recent migrants or uh, people whose families have their roots in Britain for, for centuries, that I don't really think have been confronted or or really understood in terms of what those implications still are. That was the guiding light in, in the idea behind the book, Arthur. One of the things I think is, is just, you know, a, a snapshot out there is, is actually how ignorant we all are. And, you know, I speak to someone, I, I've even got a degree in history, but I, I know that there are people of Asian heritage who came to this country from East Africa. But if you were to ask me, well, how is it that there were so many people who's, who originated from the Indian subcontinent in East Africa, I have no idea. And, and yet, you know, as you've sort of eloquently explained, you know, that's a, that's a core part of your own identity and, and, and your own family history. So I think that that thing of sort of ignorance is extraordinary at the same time, as, as you've said, you know, we're, we're so sort of shaped by this imperial past. But accompanying the ignorance is also a kind of obsession with, with, with empire. And, you know, mentioning, the, as I did, the, 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 the case study of the sort of rule Britannia debate and the fact that we still hand out these medals. So why is Britain so obsessed with its imperial past? Yeah, and on, on that point about, uh, you know, it does affect the all. I mean, you need to look no further than the BLM protests, Black Lives Matter protests, and how they how they really caught a light in the UK in a way that took a lot of people who weren't involved in them by by total surprise. Then, of course, Edward Coulson's statue ends up uh, in in Bristol's waterways, and there's a counter protest saying, "Well, tearing down statues, even if that person was implicated in slaveholding, that's an affront to to British history and heritage." So there is a serious identity cleavage. Uh, that I think actually flows from the different sort of imperial inheritance that those whose forebears were subjugated were on the receiving end of colonialism and empire uh, from those whose forebears either directly participated in empire building or, you know, sort of were the indirect beneficiaries. Now, I'd never say that present generations are culpable for the sins of or the actions or the deeds or the experiences of what came before. But, you know, for all the talk of globalization, for all our addiction on our smartphones, you know, it's what we inherit from our immediate past, from our parents, our grandparents, our upbringing, those circumstances. That's what still has the greatest, I think, traction in setting us in motion in this life and probably influencing quite decisively some of our, our political sympathies. Uh, but why is it that, uh, that Britain still suffers from uh, these occasional flare ups? And we had them, of course, around the Cecil Road statue, Memorial College, Oxford, whether to tear it down or not. Uh, we've had it with uh, occasional publications that suggest former colonies have declined because of British left and then people become angry about this. I can break it down into with the book with a couple of things that I look at. Uh, and it's empires when they end, there's always a long half-life. And part of that half-life is uh, comprises of the tangible physical legacies of empire. And the other part of it relates to the attitudinal legacies of empire. And uh, the tangible physical ones we can spot, but sometimes we need to be reminded, certainly in Britain, the biggest tangible legacy is the fundamental altering of the genetic base of the British population by becoming more ethnically diverse, primarily in the origin stories of some of those big black Asian minority ethnic, as the, the awful acronym is now, their origin stories are related to decolonization. Is it fair to say that for those European countries that have 
uh, embraced the EU in in a much more you know positive way. And clearly, you know, we're, we're different. We've left the EU. Is it would it be fair to say that for some of those countries, the kind of imperial nostalgia and longing has been sort of transferred into the EU itself? Now, obviously, I'm not accusing the EU of being like a 19th century colonial um, activity, although some people, you know, some some people might might make that accusation. I certainly wouldn't. But it it is in some respects, as you described it, is it, it is a type of empire. And maybe is, is that perhaps how somebody in a country where membership of the EU isn't really a debate, that's where that sort of imperial urge, you know, uh, delivers itself? Yeah, I like the way you use the word urge, Arthur, because... We are talking about compulsions, the attitudinal legacies of empires. They leave these urges, these compulsions. I use the phrase, the itch that needs to be scratched. And that can manifest in a variety of ways. But I suppose primarily it means uh, wanting to tell other people how to do things. And the EU is is remarkably active in promoting itself as a beacon of, of democratic good practice and believes that its conversion of former non-democracies uh, whether in the past that's been, uh, for example, Greece coming out of a spell of military rule or Portugal, but also the former communist countries, uh, the former Soviet bloc, new, new, newer member states, uh, that itch can be scratched. And it gives, uh, gives European statesmen who can't prance about along the world stage avenues uh, to express that sense of civilizational superiority. And that's the interesting thing about the European Union. I mean, I, I voted Remain. I don't have any virulent hatred of the European Union. Uh, But in researching this book, I did find uh, myself scratching my head as to how ignorant some EU officials actually are of how their project is perceived. The one who came closest, actually, was uh, Barossa uh, when he was in charge. Uh, He described the EU as a non-imperial empire, which is uh, (laughs) a bit of a ridiculous thing to say. But he was trying to get to this point of, well, we don't conquer but we are basically doing something that since the fall of the Western Roman Empire, the decline of Byzantium and to the fragmentation of the Holy Roman Empire uh, hasn't really been attempted, except for by megalomaniacs like Napoleon or Hitler, who tried to do it at the barrel of a gun or a musket. It is to unify uh, what was traditionally uh, the boundaries of Christendom. I mean, Christianity is spread, but this territorial grouping of uh, what the European Union sees as an area that has more similarity than difference and therefore should be brought uh, brought together in coherence, when placed against the long arc of history, it is, a, it is an imperial project of sorts. And that's not to jump into a Nigel Farage or a Viktor Orban position of just saying it's an empire to criticise it. I'm saying to anyone who's a Europhile, if you want to run the EU properly, and bear in mind the EU has existed for barely a tenth of the duration of either the Byzantine Empire or the Holy Roman Empire, which had to adapt to changing circumstances over 10 centuries. Um, If you want to run the European project successfully, you have to tackle head on the fact that you're splitting power between a sort of a a controlling sort of post-imperial imperial city and, uh, you know, you're having to deal with uh, revolts in sort of austerity Athens or Brexit Britain. These are your regents that you, who are pledging fealty to you as the sort of uh, the upholder of this greater, greater project that promises peace and prosperity for a particular realm, which is the same promise empires always gave as well. I just wanted to go back, though, to the, the sort of our own self-perception here in Britain. And one of the things I think you hear 
lots of people who want to defend the British Empire say is they'll say, well, the British Empire wasn't perfect, but you know, unlike the French or the Dutch, you know, the, the way we we came to the end of our empire was was largely peaceful and and and, and very civilized, and you know, not like those awful Portuguese with their mm-hmm. endless wars in Angola and Mozambique. Yeah. And now I've always been instinctively very suspicious of this argument because it seems to forget the millions that died in partition in the Indian subcontinent at the moment of decolonization. But from your sort of academic uh, perspective, is is there any truth to that argument? Can the British sort of claim that their empire was basically a bit nicer and a bit more civilised? Uh, I think not. Um, and it's good that you mentioned partition, uh, because just to point out, there's a book written a few years ago by a former British general called Barney White Spunner about partition. And I, I liked it because he was actually in Iraq when uh, the post-invasion treatment of Iraq in 2003-04 became very problematic and civil war broke out. And I think his personal motivation for writing that book was he saw a bit of a parallel with Mountbatten and British officers under Mountbatten who it just slipped out of their control because they were not homicidal lunatics, these British officers. They, They did not want that sort of bloodshed, but the local dynamics just gathered so much pace that it just steamrolled past everybody. And how do you ask British officers to understand Hindu-Muslim tensions, just as you, in 2003, asking them to understand Sunni Shia? Uh, it's, it's beyond the comprehension of, of a Western European who's been brought up in a, in a Christian or post-Christian country um, to intuitively understand it. Yeah. The other thing is, uh, so for example, the Mau Mau emergency in Kenya in the 50s, there have been controversies around uh, the extent to which the British government didn't want to acknowledge for many years that the, direct, the directly brutal treatment meted out to, to large quantities of Kenyans to suppress that revolt. Your original point in, in the question, Arthur, is, is actually that the debates around the balance sheet, did it do more good than bad? Do the railways transfer of parliamentary systems of, you know, it's not cricket unless it's fair sort of morals. Does that outweigh some of the difficult paths to modernity that these countries have faced in the wake of the British? Well, there will always be provocateurs who, who argue decisively on one side or the other. Uh, my premise in, in the Great Imperial Hangover is to say that that debate is a circle that cannot be squared. Uh, you cannot decisively argue that it was on balance a better than it was a worse thing. Uh, or vice versa. We have to accept that the permanence and the uh, unresolvable nature of that debate is one of the great attitudinal legacies in British public life. And you only need to spend five minutes on Twitter to see William Dalrymple just two days ago writing an article three days in The Guardian saying, we must have a museum of colonialism to remind us on an everyday basis how bad uh, and how out of control British repression might have become in some parts of the empire. He was writing about the 1857 mutiny in India. And then straight away, you've got, I guess, the rural Britannia crowd coming in saying, well, how can you tear out our legacy? You know, it was an empire in an age of empires. These British officers were only acting, uh, you know, based on the, on the morals and the circumstances they found themselves in. And by the way, everyone else is up to it. And of course, the clinching argument against the self-flagellation in Britain is, well, the British empire it, almost its last throw of the dice was to expend itself in a last gasp of effort against the Nazis and the nascent imperial Japanese empire. And I honestly, Arthur, without saying I'm sitting on the fence, 
uh, I've got sympathy for both sides. And I'll tell you why. Again, it goes back to our inheritance. Of course, if your family uh, were on the receiving end of colonialism, you may have a natural sympathy for some arguments rather than others. And of course, if you consider yourself to be patriotic and consider yourself, uh, can see Churchill, World War II, World War I, militarism, monarchy and the empire in a linked constellation, you are not instinctively critical. We've got to speak to both constituencies, not obsess ourselves over imperial atrocities, but nor should we be, I think, blind uh, to the negative sides of empire. It's a bit of an Orwellian double think that I'm sort of asking the reader to pull off, is holding both thoughts simultaneously in their mind. I was actually going to ask you, very recently, just the last week or so, Barbados has announced that they wish to actually remove the Queen of, of the United Kingdom from the head of state position. And I was just wondering what your thoughts were on this, because it's actually quite a, a big deal, I think, to, to be able to say that. Yes, well, it, it, it's very interesting. And of course, you know, this is in the context where I think there are 16 independent countries that have the Queen as head of state. And we all know about Australia, New Zealand, Canada. And sometimes people think, well, that's a bit odd, isn't it? You know, quite big countries. Why don't they have their own head of state? But there's also a, a longer list of, of quite small countries who have, have, have kept the Queen as head of state. And arguably, it's because it sort of solves a, a problem that you would not need to fix otherwise. And in, in very small countries, Barbados has a population of, uh, I think it's under 300,000. It stops you having to have what could be quite a difficult internal debate about how you organise yourself. But it is interesting. Yeah, so Barbados has decided, announced uh, in the last week, that they want to become a republic. Now, this is something that one or two other Caribbean countries have already done. So in fact, Trinidad and Tobago did it early on in the 70s. And and that was because at that time, Trinidad was actually very wealthy as a result of oil and gas. And, and it had a sort of a level of sort of swaggering self-confidence that I think other Caribbean countries weren't able to, to kind of equal. So seeing Barbados do it now, my take on this is that Barbados is is sort of administratively uh, one of the best run and sort of most successful of the, those smaller Caribbean islands. And they've got a level of kind of administrative capacity. And I think it reflects a, a sort of self-confidence and, and a belief that, you know, we can, we, we, we can sort of complete uh, the process of independence, which is, you know, a, a, a centuries-long affair. I mean, Barbados was colonised, I think, in, in the early 17th century. So it's a very historic colony. I think what what is very interesting about this is that uh, I I find myself sort of bemused by the fact that Canada doesn't have this debate, you know, and even though it has a, a strong uh, cultural identity of, of of the French in Quebec and so on, that actually uh, the the sort of rather anomalous position of having somebody else's queen as your head of state doesn't appear to um, sort of affect Canadian self identity. Each country's post-imperial story is a very unique thing, uh, even if the, sort of the, the half-life of decline is, is something that, that happens uh, simultaneously around the world. You know, you're talking about some of the Caribbean islands and their renegotiation around their, their sort of identity as former colonies. I was really struck in 2015 uh, when I went to a, a big stadium event featuring Narendra Modi in Wembley Stadium in the UK, obviously, and he was coming over and David Cameron was a sort of warm-up act. 
And then Modi came and addressed the crowd mainly of, of British, British people of Indian descent. But there's a real sense of the Raj being reversed because from Cameron's perspective, it's all about prosperity agenda and you know, basically not quite going cap in hand to India, but realising that so much of global wealth is shifting to Asia, demographics are shifting to Asia. But the reversal of that sort of relationship from the context of the Raj, I think there's, there's a software update in, in Britain certainly in the establishment that needs to needs to speed up around how to comport yourself in relation to either a former colony, whether it's Windrush and uh, the Commonwealth heads of government meeting in 2018 being overwhelmed by complaints around uh, you know people from the Windrush generation being sent back, whether it's uh, approaching India in the right way and in the right tone. And I think even more pertinently now, whether it's uh, how to relate to China when the Chinese will always be able to point to the opium trade and, and the various, uh, the two opium wars and the role of Britain and other European countries in what was called the Eight Power Alliance in, in sacking the Summer Palace. Uh, so history, of course, um, there's no full stops. And what you might want to forget, other people will remember. And uh, that's something I think yeah. that Britain really needs to, I think, find a path in both civic discussion, public discourse, curation of museums and also just primary education of school children uh, in a way that doesn't sort of condemn us to being uh, the, the villains, doesn't try to do, you know, divide parts of British society against one another by saying your grandparents were, were slaves and your grandparents were held, held the whip. Uh, it needs to do so in a more unifying way. And for all the talk, Arthur, of you know, that are losing our connection to the World War II generation, let's remember we're losing our connection to the Windrush generation, and to the India partition generation, uh, I say losing it, all those, all those people are in their sort of 70s, 80s, 90s. And soon there'll be a monarchical succession. And our last monarch who directly anchors our public identity and our sort of the emotional sort of core of the British state in the 30s, 40s and 50s, and she ascended the throne in 52, uh, to the imperial era, is also you know, going to pass into memory. So we've got this opportunity now where it's not so much personal experience we're talking about, but it's memorialization and it's understanding how our country ended up being so influential in so many parts of the world, English spoken all over the place, a British brand of expertise, education, whatever else, having a certain value attached to it. The city of London having uh, all these networks around the world, as well as a slightly jaundiced view that a Caribbean person might have, that an Indian person might have, certainly a Chinese person might have, when the Brits try to exert their, their influence around the world. Uh, it's a learning process, and I think we need to appreciate it is a learning process. Samir, that, that is a, fa- a sort of fantastic kind of summary of, of the challenge that, that we face in terms of relating to our past. And I, I, just one thing I'd, I'd really like to do is just uh, sort of briefly touch on Something which which I think a, a lot of the listeners have probably heard and may have had had a sort of moment of rage when they hear it, which is this sort of concept of the Anglosphere. And could you perhaps just say a little bit about what that is and why people, some people at least, in 2020, seem to think that there could be some kind of future for for post Brexit Britain in a thing called the Anglosphere? Yeah, and uh, and when when they think of the Anglosphere, it's certainly amongst uh... Uh, Brexiteers, it generally tends to be Australia, Canada, New Zealand. But it really points to the enduring importance of cultural commonality. 
I'm not a, I'm not one of those people who thinks globalization and the internet has broken down all barriers. I think in some respects it's actually it's amplified why it is that we see and seek out kinship and feel a kinship with some people around the world rather than others more naturally at sort of the general population level. Um, but the Anglosphere, it harks back to what Brexiteers, and I, I, by the way, in the book, I took Brexiteers' arguments seriously. I took the legacy of Enoch Powell seriously. I'm not saying they're all stupid. What I'm trying to say is that there are important reasons and important historical points of decision that people following those legacies of Britain's supposed sovereign independent path are pointing back to. And one of those is a declining emphasis uh, on Commonwealth connections between sort of the 60s and 70s and then eventual entry into the EEC uh, in the 70s. And the feeling that this was a wrong turn, that actually Britain should have continued to build on its uh, Anglosphere connections that related to the Commonwealth and the former empire. But the great contradiction of the Anglosphere is that it basically means preferential perception of the white English-speaking former imperial uh, uh, partner dominions over and above Jamaica or India or Pakistan or anywhere else that doesn't have that cultural connection. It is, the Anglosphere, is as, a, as much a culturalist project as, I'm sorry to say, even though it doesn't use force, as Russia attempting to reconquer or re-establish connections to parts of Eastern Europe that have other Russian speakers. It's trying to redraw the map mentally and in economic terms and possibly in terms of actual control for Russia on the basis of the way in which the end of empire uh, robbed the former imperial metropolis of influence, direct influence in parts of the world it feels it still should have direct influence. Uh, And there's no equivalence, by the way, morally between different empires. But um, just one thing I wanted to do very quickly with the great imperial hangover is yeah, I want to, so Britain's post-imperial story is one thing, but then Russia has got one, Turkey's got one, China's got one. They're all different. There are some similarities at a very low level. There's a lot of differences, but this yearning for a mythical past, whether it's a neo-Ottoman past, whether it's a Tsarist past, past, whether it's an imperial Chinese past in which other surrounding countries pay tribute, or whether in Britain it's this ability across massive long maritime networks to have direct influence, do business and, and make profits and form pacts and have sort of cultural exchanges of people who all get on and all sort of play cricket and everything else like that. Um, you know, the imperial age is over, Arthur, but its its influence hangs over us and sometimes I think threatens to darken our futures. I can't think of a better point to stop than with that fascinating insight there from Samir. So Samir, I just want to thank you very much for um, for joining us and, and for talking about your book, The Imperial Hangover. And I just want to thank the listeners for joining us today. And remember, there's a new Bunker Daily podcast every Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday with the main panel podcast on Wednesdays. And you can get each edition early and without adverts, plus our glittering range of Bunker merchandise too, when you back us on Patreon search Patreon Bunker podcast to find out more. Thanks everybody for listening and see you soon. The Bunker Daily was presented by Arthur Snell. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer was Jacob Archbold. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production. <laughs>